John Mullen, and this is the Cap Impact Podcast, a podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, California. Today's show, we are wrapping up our conversation with Ariana and Adrian from the Steinberg Institute. You can find the first half of that conversation in last week's episode. Today, we're focusing in on two bills, SB 1113 and AB 1971. SB 1113 would create voluntary workplace mental health standards that companies can opt into. AB 1971 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. It's a bill that amends an older law in California by expanding when a person can be involuntarily held for a mental health evaluation. Uh, It's a controversial bill. Obviously, we're talking about involuntarily holding someone, so civil rights issues are at play. But should it pass, it would be another tool for the people who are working to serve the population of people in California who are experiencing homelessness and also have mental health issues. Um, And we go into depth about those civil rights issues as well and what's in the bill to help try to mitigate some of those. We're also talking today with Lacey Mickelberg. She's a staff attorney here at McGeorge's Homeless Advocacy Clinic. It's a new clinic that we have on campus here. And we're talking with her about the new and exciting work they're doing to serve the people in the Sacramento region that are experiencing homelessness. So I think it's a really good episode. Uh, It's a gut-wrenching bill that we're talking about in AB 1971, but the other stuff we're talking about here in terms of what we're doing at McGeorge and what the state of California is doing to try to address the crisis of homelessness here in California, it's exciting and it's really interesting. So hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back with you at the end to wrap everything up. I want to talk a little bit about SB 1113. So what's the inspiration behind that one? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a really uh, exciting bill. We're partnering with Senator Monning um, on this one and also our Oversight and Accountability Commission in our state. They're co-sponsoring with the Steinberg Institute. And I think um, just to sort of lay out a few things first is that we know there are um, misconceptions about mental health that persist in California in our country. And one of them is that mental illness, especially depression, uh, are you know are not a concern for leaders um, of the public, private, and nonprofit organizations. Um, yet these conditions really can impact these organizations of all sizes, and impacts the success of the employees and employers as a result. So we really believe that there needs to be a shift in, in perspective, um, an expansion of awareness, and increased support for employees who are impacted by mental illness. Um, that can really that can one save lives number one, but also drive economic growth within the within the employees sector. So that's what this bill is about: is about a sta- you know setting up that standard, um, similar to how we have you know ADA and you know and we, we don't have the same um, kind of level of investment and support when it comes to mental health conditions. Yeah. What are some of those negative impacts on you said public, nonprofit, private organizations? Yeah, um, in terms of not having this kind of support system in place for mental health? Well, one, I mean, there's some really um, compelling statistics, you know, national, um, international, but there was a, um, a September 2017 report from the World Health Organization. It was called Mental Health in the Workplace. And they found that more than 300 million people um, suffer depression and anxiety disorders, which cost the global economy $1 trillion each, each year Ooh. in lost productivity. Um, and the World Health Organization states that because of stigma associated with mental disorders, um, employers need to ensure that individuals feel supported 
and are able to ask for, for that support in continuing or returning um, to work. So I know that this bill creates or is looking to create a set of voluntary standards for um, workplaces. So I wanted to have what exactly are you getting at with this voluntary standard idea? Um, yeah. And who's kind of working to set that? Is it the Oversight and Accountability Commission that's working to set those standards? They will. Um, they will be conducting, um, you know, stakeholder process. Assuming this bill is gets passed, but okay. we're modeling the standard on what was um, nationally implemented in Canada. It's called the National Standard of Canada for Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, and this was the first of its kind in the world um, to set a standard for you know voluntary guidelines, tools, and resources that are intended to guide organizations. In promoting mental health and preventing psychological harm at work. So there's actually a standard that has already been developed, and that's what we're going to be modeling our work on, um, and some of these best practices that have emerged from from Canada. And there are already there's already a movement in California to do this, okay. um, led by an organization called One Mind, and they've brought together organizations from around around the world that have international presence. You know, Levi is one of those companies. Okay. You know, Eli Lilly, Johnson and Johnson, and these are these are companies that without the mandate are already um, very interested in taking this up and implementing this across their their workspace, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of employees um, just within those those three companies. But there's a whole um, you know coalition of folks that come together on an annual basis, led by One Mind, to talk through these issues, and they've signed a sort of a global kind of memorandum of understanding about wanting to implement some of these best practices. Okay, you did mention mandate there, and I want to come back to that in a little bit. But before I go there, you did mention that there's best practices. Um, from the legislation in Canada. What are some of those best practices that you're hoping to see translate over into yeah, California? Just, just to name a few examples, and we've, we've pulled this from the from the standard in Canada. So one example is respectful workplace and harassment and bullying prevention training. Um, they have an LGBTQ inclusivity training. They have something called an emotional intelligence training. So are there are various tools okay. um, that employers can use, again, that have, the curriculum that's already been developed that we could we can pull from for California. Now, I do want to get back because you did mention that there's all these companies doing, implementing these policies already without a mandate. And I feel like voluntary and mandate kind of clash for me a little bit. Is at least my understanding. It's like if you have a standard for something, that's kind of like the baseline, but this is voluntary standard. So Correct. I, I'm trying to see how these two things fit together. Like, is it really, are we really setting standards if it's just voluntary for a company to like choose to adhere to these? Or how, how is this going to Kind of work out in the real world. I think the the voluntary standard is is a first step here, and okay. what what we, you know, our our kind of perspective on the matter is that we need to have buy in first to show the cost benefits of this. Um, we've seen this work in other areas on the physical health side, like when companies offer employees, you know, gym memberships or encourage, you know, walking walking to work and and things like that. We've seen that work on that side. So it's like we're we're trying to get the buy in first. Um, and we and like I said, there are already companies that have come to the table who are willing to do this. So I think we'll, we're going to have some critical mass and some significant data sh soon to show, like that this actually benefits the bottom line of okay. the employer as well as the health of the employee. So more of an incremental change approach. Get yes. some data that says, hey, this thing works, and then rather than just push it out and say, hey, everyone, this is how we're doing it. Exactly. Okay. So the last bill here that I want to talk about. Um, gets back to the homelessness issue, AB 1971. And I know we've got a decent chunk of lay people in our audience, folks that, you know, they might be capital observers, but they're not into the weeds on mental health policy or the prospective law students. Um, so there's some jargony terms here that I kind of want to work through first so we have that base of understanding. So I want to start with just kind of some of the legal terms here, conservatorship, 
and conservator. So could you explain real quickly what a conservatorship is and then kind of what the duty of the conservator is in that relationship? So, you know, first, um, you know, to kind of get there, I, I think it's best to kind of start with what the Lantern Pictures Short Act is in California and kind sure. of how it came to be. But um, so it, it came to be in, in 1967. And what it is, it's 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 an actual basically tells all the, but it creates a protocol for how you are to conserve someone, basically uh, involuntarily hold someone with a mental health disorder um, so at that point, you, you the courts then can appoint a conservatee. So that is the, the conservator, someone who's going to care for that person and make all the decisions uh, for that person while, during that during involuntary, that period, hold. involuntary hold. So the LPS, as we call it, um, it kind of starts with the 5150 um, code section. Okay. And I did want to get to that. So what is that code section there? So that code section... Um, is is kind of the first one that that most people are familiar with um, because it's usually used by law enforcement um, when they see someone on the street that is um, either a danger to self or danger to others. So there's kind of a immediate need to remove that person from that situation, and that 5150 hold is a 72 hour hold. So that that determination is based on. Again, um, if that person is a, is a danger to self or others and, and or is gravely disabled, the gravely disabled piece uh, criteria, it means uh, if that person can, um, can that person provide for their food, uh, their shelter or their clothing. So very basic needs. Is that person able to do that? If they are not, then that is the criteria under which they could also be held. The LPS was always meant to kind of create an alternative to the institutions that were a part of California's history. Because there was somewhat of a, maybe not somewhat, but there was a history of abuse there, there in was, that old right. it, and it's set a of institutions. Right, recognized as, as not best practice. It was, um, it was a, a time in our history where that was, um, people were conserved um, and for long periods of time, institutionalized, sometimes lifetime um, in California institutions. And when the as as times the paradigm shift occurred, uh, the LPS became the kind of the, this is our protocol. So these are the only times you can do involuntarily hold someone that meets this very specific criteria. And in addition to that, it sets up a series of due process uh, to protect that person's civil rights. So the first one, as we started out with the fifty one fifty, that only allows for seventy two hours. And um, after be doing a proper evaluation to see that if in fact this person does need um, a conserv- someone to actually take care of them, the conserv- a conservator, then you can petition the courts for a longer period and so on and so on in the LPS. Um, I believe the longest is a year. Okay. That's how we end. But um, what's happening at the very kind of very base level with the 5150 and with those definitions I just mentioned you know, when you talk about someone being able to meet their basic needs, um, it starts to get complicated as we've now reached this crisis, this homeless crisis um, in the state. And really what we've seen is more and more people dying on the streets. And it's it's horrible. And the statistics are only getting worse. 800 in L.A. County, 54 in Sacramento County alone. And um, these these deaths could have been prevented if only there could have been intervention early on. And, and we're talking about uh, things like um, like a pneumonia or maybe a, a diabetic who's gone into shock because they didn't receive um, proper treatment. And so 
as we see these things and we recognize like this could have been prevented, um, we recognize that the LPS as it, as it is used today doesn't account for those folks that maybe are not a danger to uh, sell for others and maybe they are being able to um, access food. And by the way, the courts recognize um, eating out of a garbage can as being able to get food. Okay. Um, uh, being within a certain distance of a shelter is recognized as, um, uh, you know, access to shelter, access to shelter and, and clothing. If you, you know, visibly have some, um, even though if you're not even wearing it properly, that's, that's a different story, but still indeed, um, it's regular. So it's very hard to then petition the court to, to conserve someone because the, this, this other er this, it's very hard to say, okay. And because this person is also in need of medical care, this is where they're, they're, um, they're actually a danger to self. So AB 1971, which is a bill that we are sponsoring, Steinberg Institute is sponsoring along with uh, Los Angeles County and the Psychiatric Association would take that criteria, the gravely disabled criteria and add to it a person who is unable to care for their medical needs. And it is our hope that by adding that as a criteria, we will be able to, to take care of some of these people that are um, the most vulnerable on the street. Um, it's a very, it's been a very emotional and difficult bill to work on. Um, as I've worked, uh, you know, office to office, legislator to legislator, staff to staff, um, you hear stories um, that people just feel, you know, they 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 feel compelled to tell you about their own personal story about maybe a family member of theirs that's been living on the street for years mm -hmm. and they have no ability to take care of them because the law is. Um, is very it's written in such a very narrow and specific way so they can't intervene in their care um, you hear legislators talk about their own personal stories with family members or friends that they weren't able to care for um, so these are difficult stories to hear and when you hear families talk about that um, you recognize that there's something lacking in the current law but at the same time um, what's been difficult to also um, achieve is, is that perfect balance between taking care of somebody's um, civil rights because nobody wants to be involuntarily held. Um, yeah. and that's, I mean, that's a, that's a very extreme measure, um, but to be able to, to, to say, what's that balance? When, when is it okay to take temporarily, you know, take away somebody's civil rights? Yeah, and that's actually kind of what I wanted to get to next is, how do you strike the balance? Because I do realize that I see exactly where you're coming from on this issue of there are people that need some form of medical, mm -hmm. that need medical attention, need medical care. And that certainly fits in with this kind of growing movement of healthcare being seen as a human right as opposed mm -hmm. to a privilege. And, but at the same time, kind of on the flip side of that is, you know, you are taking, you are holding someone involuntarily and that is kind of an infringement on their civil rights. So is there... Are there protections kind of built into the bill to make sure that, you know, we aren't infringing too far on it? I know there's some groups in the opposition that say that some of the language is a little too unclear. Um, and maybe that's just because it's not there in kind of the legal history of precedent, but maybe it exists in best practices. Absolutely. It, it really is a delicate balance. So it's, 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 it's very important to just recognize that right out of the gate, that that is something that anybody who enters into trying to work out um, um, this issue of, of expanding the LPS or correcting the LPS um, is going to find themselves in this exact same spot where we find ourselves today is trying to find that perfect balance. 
Um, we are now working to make sure that, for example, uh, the right people are making the decision. For example, a medical doctor, a licensed medical doctor would have to make the determination if that person needs medical care. So not not a, a peace officer or any of that, not to take anything away from them, but that is a very specific. Um, uh, I can imagine uh, that's that's just an amount of training that I don't think right. fits with the skills that you expect of a peace officer. Oh, peace officer, absolutely. And, and, and clearly, and, and when you get to that part of it, it's like that, that's, I think, where that balance is going to be created, where we need to have the appropriate people um, and making those determinations. Uh, you know, cry, there's, there's many ways people are, as counties are providing care now for homeless um, individuals that there's, there's crisis units. And sometimes they do have a clinician with them when they're um, doing this very difficult task of reaching to, out to this population and trying to do this outreach. Um, which, you know, it's a lot of work. It's not a one-time moment where you reach someone and, and offer care and they'll take it. It, it. It's many, many, many times of offering and offering and gaining their trust. Um, and so these are, the, so taking care, we've got to make sure that as we achieve this, we, we take care of those very issues so that we are not in any way go, going sliding backwards to where we came from, where we were institutionalizing people. And that was how we were providing care. That's the opposite of where anybody uh, working on this bill wants to be that's one thing we all agree on yeah. that's where we never want to go back there but i think we all agree on the on the on the issue of providing the appropriate care that's there you go we're all kind of on the same side it's how we get there that's okay. um that's uh, difficult but stay tuned well, and we, from what it looks like it doesn't seem that this bill changes any of those like rules on a 72-hour hold or you know a 14-day hold correct. under a 52 50. correct the due process um stays in place so that's that's that would remain um, even though, of course, those those are benchmarks that are very hard to meet for any um, like a clinician, like a doctor would have to really um, now make sure that they provide that they have um, that casework to prove that this person is indeed in need of medical further medical need to continue the holds to to go past the 72 hours of 14 days and on and on. But uh, there's still a lot of, you know, we this is a, a bill that we've been working on for for you know, very heavily because for all the reasons we just stated, yeah. and we care so much about getting it right. And we care so much about the families who are on the other end saying, please do something. But we also, I mean, this, this is a, a vulnerable population yeah. that um, really needs us to have their best interests inside the, the, the people that are homeless. There's this, uh, there's a lot of myths around why people are homeless. And I think that's part of the the education that we're also um, providing at the at the state capitol, like these, sometimes these are not choices. Sometimes these people are so mentally ill they don't even know they have civil rights. I mean, it's certainly it's it's a bill that kind of tugs at your heartstrings, and it's mm -hmm. definitely controversial. I know of the four bills we've talked about, this is the only one that has listed opposition. So, um, but the work that the Snyberg Institute is doing is fantastic, and thank you for the work you do, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. It was an honor to be here. So thanks for sitting down with us, Lacey. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the Homeless Advocacy Clinic at McGeorge here does? Sure, John. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess I would just tell you first with an example of someone that we've helped in the community. Perfect. And um, we worked last year with a 67-year-old woman who was referred to the clinic for assistance with her criminal record. She'd been homeless in Sacramento for three to four years, a quite, you know, a lengthy amount of time yeah. and um, was of an age that she could apply for senior housing and be placed in one of our low income senior housing 
uh, facilities in Sacramento, but was denied because of a previous uh, felony on her record. So we worked with a neighboring public um, defender's office where, where the felony had occurred, and we were able to get that felony dismissed. She was eligible for a dismissal. Okay. And we worked with her to, um, you know, file that paperwork and inform the court of her current circumstances of homelessness. Um, the court was willing to dismiss some fines and fees that she still owed, and we were able to grant her a dismissal. So we thought that's where our story ended, that, okay, we can, we can house her now and everything's fine. Um, and she did go on a waiting list for housing, but then when her turn came up again, um, she was denied because the processing hadn't gone through yet. Oh. So I know, yeah. you know, you Ooh. think, okay, we're in the clear. Um, so I ended up having to write another letter on her behalf explaining that the dismissal had occurred, you know, attaching the order for that. And she was finally able to be housed. Um, but, you know, she also had a bunch of tickets out of another county. We were able to write a letter and get those dismissed. So a lot of issues were happening at the same time for her that really prevented her from moving into housing to be able to afford housing. And we were just grateful for the opportunity that she had been referred so that um, housing became a tangible, you know, a real thing for her. And she yeah. did she did move into housing and she's doing really well. That's great. Now I do know also just from reading up on the clinic a little bit too, that you, this is more than just kind of traditional legal work too. It's a Health legal, medical legal medical partnership? Medical legal partnership, yes. Um, this idea of a medical legal partnership has been around for 12 or so years. It started, um, don't quote me, but I believe it's George Washington <laughs> University who has a center for it. And um, the idea really is that, you know, in a health clinic setting, um, doctors were treating patients who just kept coming back and coming back. So we really need to understand what are these social determinants of health, what else is going on, um, either behavioral health-wise or otherwise that's preventing them from being successful even though they have the best medical care that they can get. Um, and the common example that I'll just throw out is, is an asthma clinic. So you have a child who's getting asthma care, but he's constantly having to go back into the clinic. Um, well, it turns out that if you did a screening, you'd find out that his home had mold in it and that you really needed the assistance of an attorney to contact that landlord, work on getting those things fixed so that his asthma wasn't recurring in the way that it was before. So it's really, um, you know, vulnerable populations, unfortunately, don't have that advocacy piece for them. And we could see how there were a lot of parallels to the homeless community and those type of needs um, because they are kind of continually using our ER and health systems. Gotcha. So, so how can we deliver care better and to the whole person? Gotcha. So it's more than just the legal work. It seems like there's kind of this interdisciplinary approach. And it seems like it's not also just homelessness, even though that's kind of the name up front, but it's also kind of this housing insecure population that you work with too? Sure. Um, we take referrals not just from people who are chronically homeless or, you know, you think of the folks on the street, but precariously housed folks who maybe were homeless for um, three or four years before they were housed. Um, there's a, still a lot of instability in that community in terms of ensuring that that housing can remain stable. So what are some of the other services that you work with with your clients? Sure. So we're really um, trying to overcome some of the civil legal barriers that prevent people from moving into housing and employment. So those things are really increasing money um, in people's pockets. So that might be Social Security benefits, SSI benefits for those who are disabled and eligible. Um, that might be doing child support modifications for folks who 
maybe they neglected what their orders were, but at this point, they're really unable to pay them. So we need to get those zeroed out or back down to a manageable amount for them to pay and also cover their needs. Um, we also do criminal record expungements so that, um, you know, private employers and private landlords, you know, if they see a felony on there that maybe could be expunged, they're not as likely to rent to someone like that. So we want to make sure that we can obtain those for the people that are eligible. And then dealing with traffic fines and fees because driver's license suspensions prevent people from working and um, we want to do as much as we can to make someone more employable. Okay. What are some of those, um, I mean, what are some parts of the criminal records that you're able to kind of work with your clients on expunging? Sure. There's um, several different remedies when it comes to expungements and dismissals. Some of them could be very basic kind of one-page petitions for former um, marijuana possession charges. That's a new, you know, with Prop 64 coming in, that really opened up a lot of doors to get rid of some of those previous um, misdemeanor charges. Um, There's also, you know, petty theft and Um, minor fraud charges and minor drug possession charges, those can all be eliminated under a Prop 47 petition, um, you know, with certain criteria and eligibility. And then you kind of get more into the basic expungements as we know them. They're called the 1203.4 expungements. And those are going to be other misdemeanors, but certainly certain felonies are also um, eligible to be dismissed. What we're really looking for is if people have completed probation, if they're you know, really trying to kind of bring their life um, full circle and working on rehabilitating themselves. And I think to that effect, letters of support from community members are huge. So actually, I want to back up. I know we've been talking a lot about the clinic that you're at specifically. Yes. But this whole clinic thing is something that before I came here to McGeorge was completely foreign to me, didn't know that this even existed. So maybe let's just kind of back up to like that 30,000 foot level for a sure. second what are these legal clinics that, that law school ha- law schools have and kind of who is it is it just a team of staff attorneys that works there are these also opportunities for students that they can jump in yeah on? so the legal clinics are a wonderful opportunity for students to have a, a chance to have a case from start to finish i mean i think when you do an externship or an internship you're getting pieces you know you might get an assignment but you don't understand the full picture Um, In a clinic setting, a student is given a case and they get to run that case. Um, They're under close supervision of an attorney like myself or other attorneys in our legal clinics. But um, we we like it because we can inculcate students with um, social justice values and we hope that they'll go off and become public service attorneys or at least understand the plights of vulnerable communities when they work in pro bono service work. So it's great for us because we also get to provide um, no cost, you know, pro bono services to the community. And the legal clinics at McGeorge have been around for 45 plus years, and they've really been the face of the campus in a lot of ways and um, have provided a lot of relief to Sacramentans for a long time. So we have, um, aside from my clinic, we Which have is the newest one, right? The newest one, right. And we're kind of a subset of the Elder and Health Law Clinic. Okay. And so they're doing amazing work in terms of financial elder abuse cases. They have civil cases that they're doing. Um, we just had students who were doing depositions and, and hearings. And it's such a rich environment to learn because you kind of have those training wheels on a little bit still, right? You're under supervision of an attorney, but you're not going to get fired. So you, yeah. have, <laughs> you have a chance to, to understand legal framework and really participate meaning, you know, in a meaningful way. Um, we also have our immigration clinic that um, 
has been very busy. So we are happy that they are able to provide that service in our community. And we also have a bankruptcy clinic, which again, for those vulnerable populations, you know, low income folks, these are all things that are really important to them. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of really great work. We think so. We think so. Um, you know, we have a great reputation in the community. We do have staff attorneys, but really the students are kind of the drivers of the work that we're able to do. Okay. How many students do you have like working in there right now? So summer's a little bit different, um, but Fair. we have, um, I would say probably 15 or so students over the, over the three different clinics, but we are expecting uh, full capacity for the fall. So we are... Okay. What's full capacity? <laughs> it, well, it depends on, um, you know, you're only supposed to supervise 10 So it depends on our kind of staffing in terms of how many that we can accept and then how many students are interested in the clinics. But I would say that um, I know Elder and Health Law has 12 students, and I think immigration and bankruptcy are going to have a full load as well. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks again to Adriana, Adrian, and Lacey for taking the time to talk with us today. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts from. All of that makes it easier for everyone else to find the show. And if you're looking for more Cap Impact content, whether that's our audio content that doesn't make its way onto these podcasts, written content, video content, please check out the blog capimpactca.com. It's updated multiple times every week. You can stay in touch with us and let us know what you thought about today's show or anything you see on the blog on Facebook and Twitter. Just like Cap Impact on Facebook. You can comment and like, share away, or you can follow at Cap Impact CA on Twitter, or you can hit me up directly on Twitter. I'm at John underscore Wainwright. Last but not least, thank you to the Capital Center for Law and Policy here at McGeorge School of Law for making this podcast possible. You can find the Capital Center online at go.mcgeorge.edu slash Capital Center, and that is capital with an A. Thanks again for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.